Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, we're going to your favorite part of the American Shoreline. We're going out to California. That's right, out to the West Coast. The West Coast, the great state of California. Uh, we're going to be talking to one of the coolest coastal professionals working on the American Shoreline, a guy who's been around for a while and seen it all, a preeminent uh, coastal geologist, Dr. Gary Griggs, the director of the Institute of Marine Sciences at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Tyler. That's right. Uh, Dr. Griggs is a legend uh, on the California coast um, and has been teaching at Santa Cruz for uh, decades and decades and has really seen the modern coastal management infrastructure that we see in California come to age, pretty much the entire process. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm really looking forward to having kind of a wide ranging conversation. One of the real reasons why is there's a lot going on in California right there now. There is. It's a leading state. And, uh, you know, Dr. Griggs, as you say, the legendary professor of oceanography at UC Santa Cruz, uh, hired Tyler at the university in 1968. Could you imagine Santa Cruz in 1968? That's a happening I, spot. I I, uh, I can't imagine it, and it's I'm grinning ear to ear because I, uh, man, if I could go back, yeah, uh, in time and experience that boardwalk area back then, must have been amazing. But I'll tell you what, uh, this is going to be a fun show. We've got lots to talk about, everything from desalination to coastal erosion and managed retreat and offshore wind, mm -hmm. all going on in the Golden State. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest Questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline like what you're hearing and want to support the network, sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, Dr. Griggs, welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast, and we really appreciate the chance to talk to such an experienced and legendary professional, and I mean that honestly. You really are a tremendous voice on the American Shoreline, and it's great to have you on the show. And I'm honored to be on it and appreciate those introductions. I hope I can live up to that. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. I'm going to mention a couple of books for our listeners out there. Uh, if you're listening to the show, if you're not driving a car or jogging on a trail, uh, check out uh, Dr. Griggs, and I'm just going to go with Gary's uh, latest book. Uh, I think you've written, Dr. Griggs, what, 15 or 14 or 15 books on coastal issues in your career? Yeah, this latest one is actually number 13, and I'm working on number 14. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the latest being the ominous ocean, rogue waves, rip currents, and other dangers along the shoreline and in the sea. 
uh, a book we previewed on Coastal News Today. Uh, prior to that, The Edge, The Pressured Past and the Precarious Future of California's Coast in 2017, and Coasts in Crisis, a Global Challenge, also in 2017. Gary, you're a hardworking guy, and I understand retirement is not in your near future. <laughs> not in my near future, no. Well, Gary, uh, let's let's start with the ominous ocean. Uh, tell us a little bit about this book and what ma- motivated you to write it. Yeah, and thanks again for both of you um, for all you do with Coastal News Today, which is, is my go-to source for everything that's going on, and I'm impressed with how many things you keep up with. Um, so it's it's an invaluable resource. Um, there was a couple of things that inspired this book. Um, one, it was sort of a catalyst. Um, a local guy here has written a book, uh, Jay Nichols, called Blue Mind, um, Why Being Next to, Under, On, Near the Water Makes You Feel Better About Your Life and Do Better at Your Job. And I thought, oh, I think it's one of those feel-good books, um, and I don't know Joe Jay well, but um, saw how well that book did, and he had a release in New York City, and I think people gravitate towards things that uh, make them feel good. And as I thought about that I, while, a while, I said, you know, there, I love being in the water, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on out there that we ought to be aware of. So I, I was going to do a book called Red Mind, Why Being In On Under the Water Scares the Heck Out of Me, but I... <laughs> decided not to do that. Instead, I went with the ominous ocean. And as I got into it, um, I also had a couple of experiences that I write about in the book, you know, early on that led me to sort of have a healthy respect for the ocean. So I tried to not focus on scaring people away from the ocean because there is this wonderful lure to the beach um, for many of us. That's vacation, that's summer, that's where we go to have a you know, relaxing time. Um, and it's actually one of the safest places in the planet you could probably go. But there's still a lot of dumb mistakes you could make or bad decisions you could make. And um, people tend to overemphasize a few things like a shark attack. And it turns out mm. a little bit of research shows it. And this was surprising to me that if you look globally, well, look at the U.S. On average, one person every year dies of a shark attack in all U.S. waters. So that's, you know, Hawaii, Florida, California. One. That's like much lower risk, much, much lower than a pit bull biting you or a bee sting killing you. But almost 10 people every day drowned. Um, and then over the course of, of last winter, over about eight weeks, there was 10 people that died along this central northern California coast from Mm. being uh, caught up in rip currents or what have been called sneaker waves or, you know, climbing around on coastal rocks and getting caught by a wave and drowning. So I tried to put the things that we maybe might be most frightened of in some perspective with things that just go on every day. Um, you know, automobile accidents, drowning, falling, and so forth. So that was the intent, and I found it interesting as I delved further into things like rogue waves and rip currents and dangerous sea animals. It was just a lot of exciting stuff that uh, most of us probably don't have a real good perspective on, 
but we can still go to the beach and have a great time. Um, but there are some things you could do that you could avoid and live a lot longer. You know, much, much better than a, than a public service announcement on TV, an actual book to lay out what the risks are. I mean, it is something California is famed as a coastal state, famous uh, beaches and shorelines along the great state. And uh, millions of people a year, you know, keeping an eye out for what could go wrong is a good thing. A great book, The Ominous Ocean. And for the listeners out there on Amazon.com, Gary Griggs, uh, there's a wide selection of books to to look at and purchase. Um, Gary, I want to ask you, you know, you started at UC Santa Cruz in 1968. Um, You have been a teaching professor of oceanography for more than 50 years Um, You have been part of some of the biggest policy and science developments uh, on the California coast for many decades. Um, Could you take a a step back a little bit and give us your perspective of how uh, the understanding and the management of the California coast has evolved over the last 50 years? That's a huge, huge time period. Yeah, and and a really good really good point and question. And I think California, you know, we're, we're, we're known for our coast. Um, we're known for a lot of things and we have the, the longest coast, 1100 miles. And we have the, we'll forget Alaska for the time being. Um, and we have the most populated state with 39 million people. And some days it seems like you go to the boardwalk in Santa Cruz that everybody in California is at your beach but Southern California is even far more crowded. And I think um, after World War II, um, a lot of the soldiers and so forth came west and out into the Pacific theater. A lot of the uh, families were working in the aircraft factories. A lot of those people came from the Midwest and the East where it was cold and not particularly pleasant in terms of climate. And they decided, let's move to California. So California's population boomed in the 50s and the 60s, 70s. It also came at a time when our coastal climate went from a, well, went to a fairly calm period, what we call now a a cool or negative Pacific decadal oscillation cycle with not as many storms, not as much rainfall, not as much storm damage. So the California coast was developed in large part Mm. in the this, this calmer period when the population was exploding. So, you know, places were built on the beach, on the dunes, on the cliffs. And then the climate shifted in late 78 or 1978. And we had a series of viewers with big El Ninos and storm waves and damage and property loss. In that period, um, there was an initiative Um, that was passed by the public that led to the development of the California Coastal Commission and the California Coastal Act Mm -hmm. um, back in 1976. And I think the public in many places was beginning to see that um, access to the beach was being cut off, Um, you know, water quality may be going down, habitats were being destroyed. So some really far-reaching people um, wrote up the Coastal Act and um, Coastal Commission is now um, approaching its you know 50th year, and I think their record is pretty impressive in terms of um, the the act itself and the policies which keep evolving over time. But it's a very different place today than it was back in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s when p- 
people could do just about what they wanted. Um, and, and I think we see today the uh, results of that is a lot of houses have been built literally on the sand, um, on the edge of an eroding sea cliff. And uh, we're not unique in that regard. <clears throat> but our population densities are high. Property values are so high that this is really coveted property. But the Coastal Commission now has a sort of the last word, maybe the first word and the last word. And things like seawalls and rock revetments that have been used historically are basically that era is over. Um, it's it's almost impossible now to get a permit for a new seawall unless your house was built prior to the Coastal Act. And even then it's, it's difficult. So the Coastal Commission has stepped up. I mean, there's people that have their concerns about them because they feel like they're, you know, telling them how to use their property. But, you know, we've had zoning and restrictions around for, you know, a long time. And I think it's allowed us in the case of the Coastal Commission to protect what we value. Um, and it just makes new development um, just looked at much more carefully today. And I think the California coast and the public as a whole benefits from that. So big changes. And I've done a lot of uh, coastal consulting, working for coastal property owners. And that's an interesting sort of a place to find myself because on the one hand, they want to say some people I'm working with now that want to rebuild an old seawall that predates the Coastal Act, but just to get that done is a long, long, complex process. Nobody just goes in and says, I want a seawall permit. So we've got a watchdog organization that I think is a model for, you know, probably a lot of the rest of the country. That's, that's one of the biggest changes we've seen, you know, in the last 50 or so years. And who is that? Your watchdog agency. Are you talking oh, about I'm, the council? I'm sorry. I'm thinking of the, the Coastal Commission is sort oh, of this, okay. this agency watchdog. No doubt about it. I mean, the Coastal Commission exerts a tremendous amount of power and authority on the California coast. And I think uh, those of us that follow along closely uh, have a tremendous amount of respect for uh, the work that they do and the real professionals that they have employed uh, there, particularly, I want to give a shout out to Leslie Ewing, who just retired after a long and <laughs> uh, very successful career there. And I mean, just top, top notch people and a fantastic career for you, Leslie. Thank you so much for your service to the state of California. Um, Gary, uh, you, you mentioned working with uh, homeowners and um in the case of the seawall incident uh, instance, it sounds like they're they've made up their mind. But you know, you get to talk to people, and you also have students who are. I imagine that the owners of the beach house are older, <laughs> and I imagine you know some of your students are younger, and they, they tend to be wealthier. For sure. <laughs> no, no doubt about it. Different ends of the got a few bucks. Yeah, they got a few bucks. Uh, my question is. Uh, in the hearts and minds of the coastal citizens that you're talking to out there, is, are people beginning to, I mean, is it, I mean, we've known for a long time that armor, hard armoring on the shoreline comes with negative consequences. It speeds up erosion, it does all sorts of bad things, destroys habitat. And California's been ahead of the game on that. You mentioned the Coast Commission. But are people starting to get it? Is it soaking in? Are we, are we nearing the point where managed retreat is going to be taken seriously as like a, a civic strategy. 
That's the $64 million, $64 million question. It used to be 64000 but that doesn't buy you anything anymore. Um, that's a, a, a really good point. And actually, um, we just submitted a manuscript uh, to the Journal of Coastal Research two days ago on that exact question. And one of my colleagues and co-authors was the previous executive director of the Coastal Commission, Charles Lester. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm also working with a coastal anthropologist and another coastal geologist. And we're trying to kind of look at that um, broad, more broadly. And it's certainly becoming a huge issue in California today and, and probably other places as well. We know sea level is rising. We know um, it's increasing. It, the, the rate of rise is increasing. And... Um, all the signs are because of our continued burning of fossil fuels, the carbon dioxide continues to increase. Uh, sea level is going to continue to rise as the global uh, oceans warm and, and glaciers melt. So it's a, it's a question of, of, you know, when we're going to do this, not if we're going to do it. Hmm. But um, one example, a couple of years ago, I was asked by a coastal homeowners group here in Santa Cruz. They meet once a year and the only criteria for membership is that you own a house on the coast. Um, and they said they'd want to hear about sea level and beaches and seawalls and so forth and so on. I said, sure, I can do that. They said, there's only two words you can't mention. And that's, the, I give a lot of talks. I thought, well, what's this all about? And I said, what? And they said, managed retreat. <laughs> so, so that kind of uh, set me back a little bit uh, because that sort of in the long run, where we're heading. Uh, I think the Coastal Commission uh, and other state agencies, and I, I'm a member of something called the Ocean Sciences Trust and the Ocean Protection Council Science Advisory Team. The whole issue of sea level rise is becoming increasingly uh, important and trying to define what we can expect in the future and how we're gonna respond is becoming a more discussed topic, but, um, you may know the California Coastal Commission has required when they were created that every coastal city and county in California prepare what they called a local coastal program or an LCP. And the idea was that would lay out how Santa Cruz or Carmel or Santa Barbara, San Diego was going to deal with all of the issues that the Coastal Commission was established to kind of rule on. So whether it's access or ownership or seawalls or habitats, um, and many of the cities and counties did that. Some did not because they knew the Coastal Commission would have the final word and they decided let's not bother because they're going to have their say anyway. A couple of years ago, they decided it was time for each city and county to update their local coastal programs. And they said, what we want you also to do is look at sea level rise and determine how you're going to factor <coughs> managed retreat into your future. And three cities that have become sort of well-publicized, decided we're not going to do that. Hmm. One of those was Pacifica right? that had a series of apartments on the edge that were demolished. One was Del Mar in northern San Diego County, which has uh, got a couple issues, but a lot of very expensive homes virtually on the sand. And then they also have this railroad that's going right along the bluff that they're trying to save. 
<coughs> and then um, Imperial Beach, which is the southernmost county in the state that butts up against the Mexican border. And they all said, no, we're not going to do this. And so now there's this sort of standoff. But I think managed retreat first when it came from the Coastal Commission as this request or this requirement, I think most coastal property owners are so sort of focused on their own ownership and their rights that um, they got the sense that the Coastal Commission was going to come in, uh, basically condemn their property and take their house. It w wasn't initially put out in a way that I think was very interactive or consultive. And so that hmm. led to this pushback. So I think what we really need to do is make sure the public is involved. And I don't think anybody believes, well, there'll be some places where those houses could be lost in one big winter. But I think, I think this, the, the approach should be, um, and we started this at a pro project in Long Beach where there was three communities that are almost at sea level. One is the Long Beach Peninsula. One is this artificial island called Naples and the other is Belmont Shores. And they're all gonna be flooded by a couple of feet of sea level rise. So they started a process that involved um, the Long Beach Aquarium as an education facility and the Nature Conservancy and said, well, let's get the public involved. And the idea was, I gave the first talk was, what do we really know about climate and the sea level? So there's some acceptance that this isn't a, uh, a plot. This isn't a right. liberal oceanographer plot. <clears throat> no. Um, and so that got them started uh, and the idea was, well, what do you think is going to happen? And can we come to some agreement on this is where I think we need to go? Let's say we know sea levels rising. At some point, it's not going to be possible to avoid it any longer. We can only build walls so high. The coastal emissions is not going to let you build those. We can only pile sand so deep. Um, what are we going to do when we get to that point? Or mm -hmm. can we agree what that point is? Maybe it's when your living room is flooded once a month. Maybe it's when the cliff edge gets to within five feet of your foundation. So I think that's the way we need to go. But we're still at this uh, just uh, sort of a conflict between the Coastal Commission and the cities and counties and trying to figure out what are the steps. So this recent paper we wrote that's I think will be published soon was trying to look at what we've already done in California um, rather than a yes, no we're going to stay here. We're going to retreat. We have a number of examples where entire communities, neighborhoods, Highway 1, bridges um, have been moved back already. So this it's not unheard of. And we're trying to just keep this in perspective that this is a process that's gone on for a very long time. Um, there's a great example on the coast of um, on the Yorkshire coast of England. Um, and a book was written back in 1912 called The Lost Towns of the Yorkshire Coast. And it's these uh, very weak glacial clays that make up the, the bluffs there. And they've been retreating at six feet per year for 2,000 years. <laughs> yeah, They have records from the time of the Romans. And something like 28 villages have been completely lost. Wow. Uh, and you can go onto Google Earth and zoom down and you can see what it looks like. Uh, we were there on a trip when I was doing the um, Coast in Crisis book just to see what it looked like. Um, and it turns out it's not, you know, high density, t high rises. It was sheep pastures and hay fields. And there's now about 24 what they call caravan parks. They're mobile homes, 
manufactured homes, whatever you would like to call them. And some of them are permanent homes. Some are just vacation homes. Some people, you know, come in and park for a month and they have these concrete pads and you get water and sewer and electricity. Um, and when the cliff gets to within 10 or 20 feet of the front of your coach or your trailer, they actually just hook up a truck and you go to the back of the line <laughs> and Move somebody else back. gets the ocean. Front. And I thought, this is, you know, this is priceless. It's what I would actually call a resilient coast, which we don't have too much of. And average people can actually buy one of these, you know, for $70,000, $80,000 and live on the coast. Um, but we don't, we have a few mobile home parks in California, but these are not $50,000 mobile homes. They're probably 500000 And I don't think anybody wants to move them away. So managed retreat is going to evolve over time. But uh, we've started, but it's not something that, most people are ready to just buy into, at least not coastal homeowners. No, I think it's it's got to be, it's one of the biggest and most complex and daunting issues to discuss, uh, particularly in America. Gary, the, in this year, the National Ocean Service, uh, which is a part of NOAA, released their 2022 sea level rise technical report. Outstanding uh, bit of work available online uh, that provides the latest and greatest uh, sea level rise projections uh, for the United States. Uh, the West Coast, according to uh, the National Ocean Service, is in for four to eight inches of sea level rise in the next 30 years. The Gulf Coast, 14 to 18 inches, Tyler, so a foot and a half. Right. Uh, the East Coast, Tyler, over a foot, 10 to 14 inches. As you say, Gary, the discussion of, of managed retreat, or let's just say retreat, uh, is going to come up and is going to be debated and discussed in America because the facts will demand it. Um, yeah. uh, managed retreat is a tough issue. It's been recently rebranded, Tyler. Uh, really? What's it? What's the, the new the, brand? The new the new words we're supposed to use, and I think this is the Surfrider Foundation and some other advocacy organizations who are starting to talk about it differently. They say we can call it resilient relocation. <laughs> <laughs> that's one. The other term that's been bantered oh, no. about is called phased adaptation. Uh, uh, I think that the, the whole word retreat not a good word for America. We're not I, much I, into I dis- surrendering. You know? I I disagree. I, I don't. You know. I I don't. I, I think that. The bottom line is this isn't an American thing or not. This is just a uh, just a, a land use thing, Peter. And it's a physical fact. Well, but you know, I think the the, the real thing that we've discussed time and time again is the mecha- we need a mechanism up for a process. Mm-hmm. And every time we try to create, well, first of all, it's a political third way, uh, rail because you know you're going to be stealing tax money away from local communities and who wants that freaking do right. it and right. it's really you know so far been led by the activist community like in the surfrider mm-hmm. uh, sector and um you know our our guy uh, Rob Young out there who's yeah. advocating for it uh program in, for the study of developed shorelines western carolina doctor doctor rob young my one of our favorite that's right. Coastal dudes. I'm sorry to take your doctor away. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Dr. Young's uh, a big proponent of this. And I think that there are a, lo- a, a lot of us who look at the issue and see it, its inevitability. But Peter, we say this all the time. The thing is, you got to buy the property. Got to write checks. And that's the public. That's on all of us, ladies and gentlemen. We have to buy this yeah. property. And um, 
you know, we spend a lot of money, as Dr. Young points out, on mm -hmm. beach renourishment and shoreline stabilization and engineering services for building up and fighting. And at some point, we need to create a bank account. I'm saying just very, very yeah. bluntly, we just need to create a little yeah. fund yeah. that we start using to implement the purchasing from willing sellers. And I do think that, you know, Good I'll idea. tell you, I'll tell you, here's my personal story. Uh, Gary, this is just my <laughs> my mom. Uh, growing up, we had a family beach house uh, on Faria Beach in Southern California. Big old uh -huh. seawall. Uh, Peter, you've spent some time there. It's a yeah. lovely place. Hefty wall. Uh, my mom uh, came to have the place after my parents' divorce. And we, you know, this was a family gym. We grew up going there. We really, I mean, I desperately wanted this to be a, a family property for my whole life. But my mother was the anxiety of owning it. And I mean, you know, needless to say, she couldn't throw an unlimited amount of money and make the problems go away. Like she would lose sleep over the place wow. and she dumped it. <laughs> she sold it. <laughs> And it, I mean, for, for I mean, you know, it, it, it went up in value. It's not like it's a distressed asset at all. It was a great asset, but uh, the anxiety of it. So I, I do think that there mm -hmm. will be a psychological change and there would be an opportunity to step in and maybe pick these things up if the public were interested. Gary, uh, Tyler, I like your suggestion. We've got to put together an account. We have to put together some money. Gary, let's talk about that. According okay. to the American Shore and Beach Preservation Association's National Database of Beach Nourishment Projects, in the last 100 years, Tyler, California has undertaken 536 beach nourishment pro projects. They have spent about $340 million, and they've placed about 365 million cubic yards of sand on the California coast since 1921. That's a lot of bread. That's a lot of money, $340 million. Gary, if you were the king and we had the magic wand, how do we, in your experience, how can we truly advance the discussion to make managed retreat a viable option of consideration in California or in America at large? What do you think is missing? How do we make that happen? How does it become a viable alternative. Yeah. Well, that's what we tried to deal with in this, this paper. And we've, we've done a couple of these manuscripts recently trying to look at it. Um, I, I mean, it ends up being called what we call a wicked problem, meaning there's no solution, not, not a difficult <laughs> problem, but a wicked problem. Right. And um, there's so much at stake there and just your family, um, thinking about selling it way back in the 50s, I grew up in the San Fernando Valley and my parents, not wealthy, my dad was a high school teacher and we used to go out to the beach, Zuma Beach, Trancas Beach, where now um, Broad Beach is uh, yeah. the movie beach. And right up above Broad Beach at Trancas, my father thought it'd be a great idea. There was a lot for sale for $3,500. <laughs> this was in about 1950 four or five um and there was another one up in the hill there above zuma beach at the same price and he didn't have the money but he borrowed it from my mom's uncle uh they bought these two properties for a total of seven thousand and within about four or five years 
um, they thought they were probably worth more. So they sold each of them for $5,000. That's a plus. Said, Whoa, what a killing. Yeah. So um, I think, and I'll use Broad Beach as an example. I've done some consulting there for the groups that were trying to save Broad Beach because they've got some serious problems. It has to do with sand supply and upcoast loss of sand that's flowing down into Magoo Submarine Canyon. So Broad Beach is getting narrower and narrower. It's now, instead of Broad Beach, it's not much beach at all. And all those homes have their septic tanks in the sand in front of their homes. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a movie star or not. Septic tanks you don't want to have exposed to <laughs> ocean waves. They've had a long conflict with the Coastal Commission because they didn't. It all stinks. It. it doesn't matter how famous That's you right. are. You know what I mean? It's not <laughs> good. Said that. We don't want that. That's right. Um, you, can't, you can't escape that reality. No, you cannot. Um, so they've had a problem with the Coastal Commission because they tried to keep people off the beach because they're, you know, visible people and the coastal commission said, yeah, you can't do that. And, uh, but they actually allowed them to put in temporary sandbags. Um, but they had to provide a couple of public access ways, which happened. The sandbags didn't even last one winter. Hmm. And then they had to come up with a permanent solution, which in their mind wasn't moving their houses, but to build a rock revetment until they could get sand to nourish the beach with. And it turns out they hired a big coastal engineering firm who did this, plan and study and they they asked me they paid me to critique it and i said well sand's not going to stay on that beach because the literal drift's going to move it right on by and they said well we'll just scrape it with a big dozer from one end back up to the other and we'll keep doing this forever mm -hmm. turns out they couldn't find a place to get the sand in the ocean they thought they had a source they didn't then they went up to a quarry um up above ventura and um they were going to bring in in two different batches, um, 600,000 cubic yards of sand in from Moorpark. Wow. Um, and that would be the equivalent of 60,000 dump truck loads. And the county of Ventura said, you're not going to take all that sand down our highways and streets. So they're now stuck. They've got these temporary rocks in there. And some of the homeowners are suing each other over different ideas. So um, nourishment was done a lot, as you said, um, particularly in the earlier part of the well, back in the 30s and the 40s. And a lot of that sand, in contrast to the East Coast, where they're doing it for nourishment's sake, and if you look at the numbers for the East Coast, it's like $5 billion, um, a yeah. lot more cost and a lot more sand. And they're still doing it today. Um, they're taking it from offshore. The Corps of Engineers loves to do this, put it on the beach. Most of California's, with a couple of exceptions, was either from in the 30s all of santa monica bay as they built oh places like lax and the hyperion sewage treatment plant and refineries and so forth they took the sand from the dunes as well as they were creating new harbors and marinas and dredging river channels so it was a place to get rid of the sand so they did put a lot hmm. of sand on the beaches but it was a way to get rid of this coastal sand um, a lot of the sand also has been dredging here in Santa Cruz, we dredge it out of the uh, entrance to the harbor and put it on the down coast beach, 250, 300,000 cubic yards. So it's really not nourishment is as much as it is bypassing. On the east, there have been two big nourishment projects down in San Diego, Sandag, where they took it from offshore, put it on the beach. Two projects, 11 years apart, cost $46 million, and that sand was gone within a year or two. And now wow. the core is coming back and saying, hey, we've got a 50-year plan for you. Wow. To me, that's 
that's nonsense. It's idiocy. It's very temporary. It's very expensive. I mean, it is one of the things that's put out there. But so, I mean, that's just a little response to the nourishment um, yeah, yeah, history. Yeah, and there is that, that great database that's Rob Young and his group keeps. And ASBPA has one also that you mentioned. Yes. But I think the problem personally of manager freedom buying people out, and you may know there was a bill that got in the legislature in California yep. last year that uh, Newsom um, vetoed. And I think there's another one pending now. The problem is, um, in Broad Beach is probably the, or Del Mar are probably the extreme examples. When you've got houses that are worth 20 million, 30 million, 40 million dollars, yeah. they were going to make a, a fund of 30 million. Well, yeah. that buys you one house. Right. It, it was a different after um, Superstorm Sandy in New Jersey, where you could buy, you know, three houses for a million dollars, and people took that and, and relocated. But I think in California, I think it's going to really a really hard sell. And I think the only option is to say, like we did in Pacifica, these are no longer safe to occupy and we're going to red tag them and they're going to come down. And people finally said they'd made their money on the apartments and buying and selling. Yeah. <clears throat> so they're gone now. Now well, that's Gary, that's unmanaged retreat, right? Tom? I mean, exactly. what we're waiting for is wait till the house is basically no longer viable as a structure, yeah. and then we take it out when it's and, collapsed. And the other thing is, and I, I, I totally get why that makes sense, because, uh, listen, you know, after the storm comes and the house is all messed up, she ain't worth as much, and mm -hmm. uh, the owner might not want it anymore, and it's easier to do an acquisition at that point. However, right. even if it means buying a couple healthy properties in it, I just think to get the program started, taking those properties, turning them into a somewhat public space, finding mm -hmm. ways to capitalize on those spaces for the for the public benefit. Yeah. Uh, in terms of creating new accesses, maybe there's some uh, fees that can be utilized that are effective in promoting the program into the future. But I just think we need to start. Uh, as a society, and not, this is not just strictly a California thing, folks. Right. I think that this is a this is a global thing. We have got to oh, develop yeah. the techniques to do this, uh, but particularly on the American shoreline, where we do have uh, private property rights that allow the private property owner to hold that property and do a hell of a lot with it. And um, I think we have to decide as the public to reacquire some of those spaces and it's going to the longer we wait the more expensive some of these spaces seem to get because as you point out no if, doubt. if we had made this decision gary back in uh the 50s yeah. yeah i mean we would have been sitting pretty right you know gary well, you mentioned uh uh the the database that rob young puts together on this stuff and according to to, to rob young and the and the program for the study of developed shorelines nationally tyler since in the last hundred years how much money have we spent on beach nourishment, according to Rob Young? Uh, $11.5 billion is the number. And uh, for the distribution of about 1.4 billion cubic yards of sand on the American shoreline, we are writing big checks, as my point. And I think, Tyler, your point is, can we shift some of that to right. an actual solution of acquisition and buyout? Um, to begin investigating how, yeah. how to do it and start somewhere. How, it, how it looks. 
Yeah. I'm curious to do, I'm just trying to picture it in my mind. You've got a, a ra- you know, a, a strand of 10 houses and say two Frio of them. Frio Beach, isn't that where you're Yeah, I'm thinking about, about like, what if my mother mm-hmm. was like, you know what, I don't, I, this, the, it, we're on an armored shoreline, you know, I would like to give, you know, be a part of the buyout program. Yeah. And it would be, you know, somewhat, it would ha- legally, I believe, is the rules, it would have to be kind of a market rate acquisition. Correct. And so she would get kind of the same kind of deal she would get putting it on the private, you know, just putting it out there on the market. Fair market values but, required. But it would ensure that the, you know, that her place would go, it would be transferred into the public's interest. I don't know. The place would come down. I don't know what they would do with it. It's not a large, I don't know. I'm just trying to envision it. Demolish it, remove (laughs) it. Uh, Gary, you've been at this for 50 plus years. Do you think in your lifetime you'll see a meaningful uh, retreat policy executed in America? Or have you, you know, you mentioned a few. Right. What, what right. Do you, what, have we? Are we? Are we being too pessimistic? Is this? Does this option actually been executed? Would you find out in your research for your latest paper? Yeah. <clears throat> um, you guys ask great questions, and I always want to say, "What's the next next question?" <laughs> <laughs> um, in my lifetime, and I think what, what if we had a winter like 1983 again, which was a, a big El Nino, so sea level was elevated you know, a couple of feet along the California coast for months. Then we had a series of big storms, seven or eight that happened to come at high tide. So those kind of made for the perfect storm. And there was something like 3000 houses that were damaged and tons of businesses and state parks. So there was a time when the values of those homes were probably reduced, sort of like coming in after a hurricane. And I think if your house or like those apartments in Pacifica were significantly damaged or became became a significantly higher risk. I think that would be an easier time than when things are looking rosy. Yeah. Um, the, a, a, a plan like this, and I, I know a colleague in Australia put this forward, and I think this was part of the plan for the California legislation, Senate Bill 83 or whatever it was, was to have the local community buy it back and then they can rent it back to the owner or to somebody else until it's no longer habitable. Yeah, life I, estate. Yeah. I, I think the problem with that is once a public entity buys it, they no longer pay property taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So the property taxes that come in from a $30 million house <laughs> yep. is immense. And I think the, the, the rent somebody would pay is not even going to pay for the lost property taxes. So it's never going to recover the value that the city or the county had to pay. But if maybe times were getting bad, you know, we're not letting build any more seawalls. You can see the, the writing on the wall or the water in your window. Maybe <laughs> like people that. will become or a little more open. You know, yeah, maybe people are getting older and realize, no, my grandchildren aren't going to be able to live here, so maybe yeah. this is a time. I don't think you can forbid people from giving it to their grandchildren, but at some point you have to draw a line and say, okay, right. you guys can enjoy it and they can be here, but we're not going to transfer this ownership while it's in this situation. Now you're thinking that's that's where we got to get to, and you mentioned you know, what are the driving forces for this kind of uh, thinking is going to be conditions have to get sufficiently worse Right. And I'll just note for the record that NOAA is predicting in the Pacific uh, La Nina event this year that is going to be record-setting. And uh, 
since we've got an oceanographer, Tyler, I've never really fully understood what the hell La Nina conditions mean I and would, what they mean in the Pacific. So, Gary, Doctor Griggs, Doctor Griggs, because you know, Tim, I, before we get into it, <laughs> Gary, my dad is so funny because, like, he'll be like one one day he'll be like, looks like it's an El Nino year, and then a week <laughs> later he'll be like, it's a La Nina pattern, son. I can tell. So yeah. I know that's not the way it works. So we need some clarification. Uh, educate me and my father. What is La Nina and El Nino? Yeah, I wish I had a blackboard right here. I could draw it on the blackboard. We can't do that. So normally, the normal situation um, is tends to be more like a, a La Nina year. Um, so in the latitudes from the equator up to, say, 30 degrees north and south, the trade winds generally blow from east to west. So they blow sort of at an angle towards the equator, and that drives the water in the equatorial regions, say in the Pacific, but also in the Atlantic and the Indian. It drives that water, surface warm water, over to the western Pacific, towards the Philippines, and mm -hmm. Indonesia, and Australia. And then that water sort of diverges because it hits land and it moves up along the coast of Asia, Japan, becomes the Kuroshio current, comes all the way across is a gyre, a clockwise gyre, um, up the Gulf of Alaska, down the California coast is the California current. And those hmm. patterns kind of circulate in the northern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. So those are kind of typical. The water off our coast is generally kind of cool because it's Kuroshio current's gone up into the Gulf of Alaska. So California current is generally pretty cool. Um, and weather is sort of more benign. We don't tend to have a lot of big storms. We don't have as much rainfall. Weather's amazing. Flooding and landslides. Every, <clears throat> excuse me, three, four, five, six years, for reasons we do not understand, those trade winds die down. So this, these winds that are blowing towards the equator and pushing the water west across the Pacific to the Asia side, there's a big bulge of warm water. And we can actually see that on satellite records. That bulge of warm water moves back across the equator, flows in the opposite direction. It hits the coast of Peru and Chile. Um, and normally um, this would happen around Christmas time. Um, which is why it was called El Nino, supposedly the Christ child. Oh. And what it did was along the coast of South America and Central America and uh, North America, we have what we call upwelling. So the current, California current coming down the coast, um, because of the Earth's rotation, it tends to move the surface water offshore. And we have this cold, nutrient-rich water come to the surface that's yeah. very high in nitrates and phosphates because of all the things that have died and settled the seafloor. And that then generates the nutrients that generate the tiny floating plants like the diatoms and then the small floating animals uh, and then the small fish and then the tuna and the anchovies and the sardines and the whales and so forth. So that's what made Peru um, uh, a healthy fishing environment, but it also led to the seabirds that crapped all over the rocks and produced this very rich guano. Right. So when this El Nino would hit every four, five, six years, and they know this has been going on for thousands of years, it shut down the upwelling because that warm water kind of swept in over that cool coastal water, 
um, no upwelling, no nutrients, no fisheries. The birds went away. The fishing industry died down for a year or two, and the, the fertilizer industry stopped. So that's when it was first given a name. But that same bulge of warm water now diverts, diverges and goes up the coast of Mexico, California, and down the coast of South America. That's an El Nino year. And, and a couple things happen. The water is warmer, so it brings a lot of tropical uh, organisms, fish up into our waters. Hmm. It also is warmer, so it evaporates and we get more moisture in the air, more rainfall. And we also get more storms from the southwest that hit the California coast uh, at a different angle, creating more uh, problems of erosion along the coast. So, and, and that is a La Nina condition is what you're saying. That's El Nino condition. Oh, El Nino condition. So that is, produces is more storms, more okay. erosion, more rainfall. Um, so you didn't need a blackboard at all. You oh, did yeah. a, I, think I you was did drawing a great... on my hands the whole time. <laughs> you did a great but, but job. The other part of it, La Nina, which isn't so keen, is we don't get as much rainfall usually. Right. Because the water's colder, we don't get as much evaporation. So that's when we see a La Nina coming and somebody says, oh, that's good. Well, not so good. But, you know, it's not it's not binary. We get La Nina, we get no rain. It, we can get, it varies from Northern California to Southern California. But we throw those words around with probably uh, without really understanding them maybe too well. No, but definitely. What I find amazing is we can go to Mars with a rocket and we can lower down with cables a, a rover onto the sea for, sur, sur, or the surface of Mars, drive it around, take pictures, take rocks, core, and we do not know why we have El Ninos. <laughs> well, we it, don't know. <laughs> you, you know, uh, Gary, it's so interesting. And I have to say, my thinking on the atmosphere and ocean currents has really changed over the past several years. And now when I look, when I think about planet Earth, I think of Jupiter. I think of the uh -huh. swirly swirls on Jupiter. And <laughs> because I think storm. that's what, if we could see b differently the planet, I think that's what we would see. The atmosphere and, and the currents, yeah. Yeah, and this interchange of heat and chemicals and life, and it's just it's just so cool. It but, is. But uh, I, I have noticed in recent years, and it is, I think there is a lot of confusion out there, and I, I really appreciate the clarification. I'll be sure to send this to my dad uh, <laughs> so we get the Perfect. record straightened out. But, uh, you know, I have noticed, you know, in recent years that the patterns have been odd, and, uh, I mean, it really does feel like climate change is impacting the, the, the trends. Would you agree? I mean, in your lifetime, have you seen or experienced, are you, ex do you feel like you're experiencing climate change on the California coast? Like in a, in a way that you feel? Yes. And I think, I mean, one of the easiest things to look at is the tide gauges and the satellites and see sea levels rising. But a colleague of mine is also showing now that the, the waves are actually getting larger globally. Um, you know, more extreme um, mm. temperatures, stronger wind velocities. I think the terrestrial people are probably even seeing it more so. I have a brother who's a fairly conservative guy in Carmel Valley. He raises olives and makes extra virgin organic olive oil. And he says, God, every year I don't know what's happening. The, the flowers come earlier and they last longer or this happens or that happens. And he's was sort of a climate change denier for a long time and now he's saying something's going on i don't know what it is can you explain it to me and mm -hmm. i said well <laughs> shit Rea happens. reality is a good teacher as i like to say reality is a persistent teacher uh, yeah. we can hold our perceptions yeah. of what we think it is 
but the world will teach you something about it. Gary, you mentioned that, you know, I got to ask you one thing, and it's just great to have some of your experience and expertise on the show. And I know we're getting close to the, to the end of this, but I really wanted to touch base on, on the California Coastal Commission's recent decision to deny uh, the permit for the desalinization plant. What's the name of that? Poseidon, Tyler? Poseidon, Poseidon, plant, Poseidon yeah. plant in Southern California. I mean, we've all watched Lake Mead and Lake Powell decline to historic levels, the, which is the main part of the water supply system for much of the Southwest, particularly Southern California. Gary, is there a, as an oceanographer, is there a way uh, for the state to pursue alternative water supplies through desalinization in a way that's environmentally acceptable to you? What do you think? An alternative versus doing desal in an acceptable way. Or it's desalinization. Is there a way to do desalinization as a viable alternative? Well, interestingly, you know, Poseidon is a private company. 2015, they got their plan approved in Carlsbad, so a little further south. Um, That took, I don't know, 10 to 15 years. It costs a billion dollars. It produces 50 million gallons of fresh water a day. And San Diego isn't really known for its high rainfall. So they're partly imported water, some groundwater. Um, but that's been, it was the, it's the biggest, most technologically advanced desal plant in the country. And it's working out great. So they decided to take on the Huntington Beach one. I think it's been 10 years. I got involved uh, a little bit in it because the consulting engineering firm was having problems with the Coastal Commission and the issue of sea level rise and where they were going to put it. Um, and anyway, they were having trouble working with the staff and I just tried to put together something that explained it. So I think what I got out of it was the Coastal Commission staff who do all the background work on the homework and put together a recommendation and a um, report on every project that comes to the Coastal Commission, they recommended denial and they used a couple of arguments. One was the elevation of the plant and when was it going to be impacted by sea level rise? One was the ocean impact. And I think the other one, well, they said it's the, it's the wrong project at the wrong place at the wrong time. Hmm. And the Coastal Commissioners unanimously turned it down, but they, but they made a point to saying, this isn't the end of desal. It's just not the right place in the right time. Right. Well, well you got to have it where the people need it. Um, and as an oceanographer, I've looked at the information on, there's three issues that are always raised besides the NIMBY issue. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Not in my backyard. There's another one that's come up recently called banana, which is build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I hadn't heard that one. That that sort of says it all, doesn't it? You can use that. I like it. There's always three big issues. There's the um, ocean impacts, there's the cost, and there's the energy use. And I think the energy use and the cost, to be clear, there is no more cheap water out there. You know, a lot of the dams were built decades ago with federal money. We've paid them off. The pipeline's been paid off. So water's pretty cheap in California in most places. So when you compare it to existing costs, I think the Poseidon uh, project is, was about twice what the existing cost is. But if your sources, your dams, your reservoirs don't have any water, yeah. you're going to pay a lot to get it. So that's the security. And we've got 330 million cubic miles of ocean water out there that's never going to go away. 
Um, so I would say the cost and the energy, you know, you can deal with the energy by putting in more solar panels or something and try to make it self-sufficient. The cost yep. is coming down. The ocean impacts, I think, personally have been way overblown. Um, you know, there's the issue of sucking in plankton. Well, right. <clears throat> studies have been done show there's a lot of plankton out there. And when we have a, you know, a, a squid or some fish, they lay thousands of eggs and maybe 1% live to maturity or the oceans be stuffed with fish. So there's some small losses, but we can deal with that. There's talk about the brine, like this is a toxic right. waste and the brine is, yeah. is twice the salinity of seawater. You can mix that with treated uh, sewage water. We can do that in Santa Cruz and you get exactly ocean salinity. So get down to 32 parts per million. Yeah. So I, I think those yeah. are all manageable, but I think, um, at some point, everybody wants to be able to turn on the water and, and get fresh water out of their tap or their shower. So uh, I don't think we're going to build any more big dams in California. We may raise a few. Um, I hope so. But I, I think this is a, a, a source we can always count on. But, you know, you don't turn that faucet on tomorrow. It's taken Poseidon 10 or 15 years. So you got to start yeah. now, which they were trying to do. So it'll be interesting to see what happens well, next. I just want to uh, say a couple words on that, Peter, before we wrap up. And that yep. is, you know, I, I do think that the people in California need are, are, are thirsty, I will say, for <laughs> a solution and for an effective response. And I think it's really important for uh, the state and the Coastal Commission. And the governor has signaled this, as Gary, you said uh, the state it does seem to be leaning in the direction that in the future, desal will be on the table. But uh, we're going to need to start seeing some of that happening, I think, because if uh, if the government doesn't respond in any way, shape, or form to a water crisis, yeah, uh, my not, lord. Not good. Not good. Not and, good. And we have a lot of other responses that we will need to be taking that are not as um, clear as, you know, you pe there, let me tell you something. A lot of folks just need their water and so right. i it's, it's one of the it's basics just, it's just that simple yeah, i'm it's, sorry it's golf courses. <laughs> <laughs> well and that's the other side of the coin which is what can we do to be more efficient and be good stewards right. of the of the, the yeah. water but you know what uh i i really do hope that the planners are not thinking that they can push that forever because at some point uh there will be a backlash to that i am quite certain Right. And the well, problem is, is they say there's a 10-year or 15-year startup. Um, I mean, another big part of California is, you know, the farmers are being told now, you're not going to get any water this year. Yeah. And we provide, you know, 95% of the nation's everything. Um, so what happens when you, you know, all of a sudden almonds are, which take a gallon of water per almond, you can't grow almonds anymore. And, right. and we don't have enough to flood rice in the Sacramento Valley. <laughs> Um, there's some other bigger issues besides the golf course um, that, you know, the rest of the country depends on us. So we've got to start planning ahead pretty quickly. Right on. Well, big issues on the California coast. We could do three we hours. We didn't get to Gary. wind. We didn't get to wind power, no, which is a huge we? emerging new subject on we'll California, the retreat issue. I mean, there's so much, Gary. Um, I, can we can we do this again, Tyler? We got to get Gary yeah, back on this summer and uh, continue the conversation with uh, Gary, you bring so much to the table. 
Thank you for taking the time. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Gary Griggs. He is the director of the Institute for Marine Sciences at the University of California, Santa Cruz, a professor of oceanography, an absolute legend on the American shoreline. Gary, what a treat <laughs> to spend time with you and uh, get a chance to talk about some important issues. Thanks so much for, for joining us on the show. Uh, thank you. It was my pleasure and happy to talk again. Singing Mama down the Then a boy, take one.